So that's the real story of how we got agribusiness. It was not a takeover. It was, come on in, guys. It'll be fine. Oh, my God, the leopards ate my face, too. Until the farm community is willing to grapple with that, I don't think they're the people to dictate how we change and how we get out of this. You're listening to Farm to Tabor, and we're back again with Hannah Ironreich, and we're talking about the continued history of American agriculture in the United States and how it doesn't really line up with the everything used to be awesome until corporate agriculture started. There's a reason corporate agriculture happened. It grew out of things that were already going on that were not great. We're going to talk about them. And last week, we let off at Southern Sharecropping, Pellagra, malnutrition in reservation communities, all of that good stuff. So... We mentioned there was a whole lot of money coming from the South, and I think also like at the same time from reservation communities, you know, the government contracting to buy all that grain and lard and tallow and stuff. That was mostly flowing to the Midwest. So we're going to talk this week about the golden age of Midwestern agriculture, where this myth that family farms used to make money came from. It was true for 20 years, and today we're going to talk about why. So welcome, Hana. Hey, hey. So happy to be here. This is coming from a testimony before Congress in 19, I think, 17. The testimony would have been after 1917, but it was using 1917 statistics, just about economic development in the U.S. after the First World War. This guy said South Carolina alone had imported 70 to $100 million worth of food in 1917. In $1917. So internal trade statistics can be a little bit challenging when we do an import and export to other countries, then it crosses the border. We have documentation. It's a little bit harder to find when it's in the United States, right? I'm sure historians and economists could go and find it. I'm a crop production person. This is what I'm working with, right? Yep. <laughs> so if you extrapolate from the population of South Carolina at the time and kind of expand that to the whole South where cotton was king, as they say, 70 to 100 million a year in 1917 dollars, adjusted for inflation and for population across the whole South, we're looking at 16 to 23 billion worth of food imports to the South every Holy single shnikes. year. Yeah, every single year. So 16 to 23 billion. I'm just going to go with 20 billion you know, make it a nice round number. And last episode, we talked about why it was that the South was importing all this food. Hannah, can you give us a brief summary? Because I've been talking for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the best way to keep your captive labor population captive is if you make it so that they are dependent on you in so many ways. In addition to mob violence, Jim Crow laws, segregation, all this stuff, it was not strictly a legal and violence effort. There was also like supply chain issues used to keep people under control. So that's kind of what we're exploring today. I think most folks who are interested in the history of the South and of labor are familiar with all the violence that was going on, with all the legal stuff that was going on. The food and supply chain part is a lot less known, I think. A lot more subtle. Yeah. And I think we don't talk about it because it does not fit the picture of, oh, well, the food system used to be good and wholesome. It totally... Yeah. Or self-sustaining in any way. Yeah, it kind of undercuts that whole idea of, you know, the food systems used to be good, whole, and pure. So, um, But essentially, right, post-slavery, sharecropping became the thing. And what the sharecrop owner, landowners did in order to keep people sharecropping and not, say, being self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and able to, say, act in their own behest politically, was they made food dependency part of the sharecropping arrangement. And so they undertook the obligation, those brave landowners, to (laughs) feed their sharecroppers. And they fed them with things that due to the expeditious nature of trying to get large amounts of grain to poor families, 
from the Midwest turned out to be massively niacin and vitamin B deficient. And wow, that was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. But why did they do it? They did it for power. Mm -hmm. And lots of people died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think that we know of there are about 100,000 people who were died from pellagra. So that's not the number of people who had it, it would have been much larger. But the people who had it so severely, they died from a very treatable malnutrition problem. And this was going on from about 1900 to 1940. So well within living memory. And again, it's really fascinating to me how much this was such a huge deal in public health. And we've completely memory hold it. Because again, if we remember that this happened, then we can't believe that the food system used to work. <laughs> <laughs> before World War II, right? Right. So was it 1984 is the one that had Big Brother in the memory holes? Yes. Yeah. I used to not really understand where Bradbury, excuse me, not Bradbury, scratch that. Oh, Orwell. Uh, ah! Orwell. Different so, dystopias. Orwellian. <laughs> that yeah. we forget that. We've been like hanging out with Ray Bradbury lately in this house. So cool. um, yeah. So I never really got what Orwell was going at, you know, as a much younger person, I was like, how can people just forget these terrible things? And then I learned more about our history. And I was like, oh, our history is full of this stuff that we have just memory hold. Because if we actually admit it happened, we have to really change how we look at how we're doing things now, right? And again, you know, what do historians rely on? And authors in a lot of cases rely on, they rely on documented evidence that is submitted in a way that is easily verifiable. Mm-hmm. Unless you're talking about, you know, early meteorological data, which is diary based or things of that nature. But essentially, if you're a poor sharecropping family, are you going to report this to your local newspaper that prints your name if you're black in lowercase? No, you're not, right? And if you are the doctor who's there treating people and your entire existence depends upon the wealthy landowners actually paying you to treat them too, are you going to write this up? Again, the economic impact of this. The economic impact that makes memory holes, it's unsurprising, but also very shocking, right? Yeah, yeah it's pretty impressive. And I think we talked a bit about this a little bit the last episode. The public health professional who was really able to bring to, to blow this open was a federal employee, you know, and so he didn't answer to Southern landowners it, as directly as local doctors might have had to or chosen to. And of course, he was wildly reviled in the South for it. It was like, he's just some like damn Yankee who wants to make us look bad. And I'm like, well, I don't know, like starving people to death makes you look pretty bad. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) But it was a big political flap. We're currently dealing with a public health problem of massive proportions of a different kind right now. As a food historian and someone who worked in food safety for years before this happened, where we're dealing with a lot of the same attitudes, we have business owners who are like, well, I shouldn't have to do anything to keep my place clean because I mean well, and I want Mm. my, you know, I want my customers to be healthy. And I'm like, okay, it's easy to say you want that, but are you going to do anything about it? Right. That translation got really missed. My personal favorite too, is when they're like, but it's really important that we stay open because these people need jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. Similar thing with the sharecroppers. Oh my God. What would these poor people do if they didn't have our land to (laughs) farm? Right. We're job creators. Except we're terrified. When we actually answer that question, because we can't let them leave, because then who's going to farm our land and allow us to continue our life of leisure and Mm -hmm. wealth? Yeah. So the public response to COVID is really, once you've worked in public health for a while, I was working in food safety before the pandemic and kind of starting to get to know the Pelagra story a little bit. Once you've seen how public health debacles unfold, nothing about COVID is surprising. I don't want to be that person where I'm like, oh, yeah, well, this is just how it, there's nothing surprising about this, because I think that people take that to me, don't be shocked. No, it's shocking. It's horrible. It is not right. 
Yeah. And this is it doesn't fall in the realm of actual public health policy. It's mm-hmm. just what we do when people are expendable. Yeah. So this is how U.S. and a lot of other nations have largely responded to public health disasters. It affects people, but not the rich people as much. And so they don't care. Now, interestingly enough, the fatalities have kind of switched. It's now unvaccinated, largely older white conservative folks who are dying at higher rates. That's new. At some point, they may catch on, but there's so many attitudes already entrenched that have made it very difficult for them to actually grapple with that reality. And that's not unheard of, you know? So again, I guess we're kind of finishing off some of the political ramifications of Plagra before we get into the money part and what the Midwest had to do with all this and how much money the Midwest made off of all of this, which helps explain why Plagra went on so long, is the Midwest was making buckets and buckets of money on this public health disaster. Anyway, we'll get into that in a minute, but that's a lot of how they get continued is a lot of people are making lots of money by either doing nothing and just kind of like letting nature take its course or just having a population that's too sick and tired and overwhelmed to do anything to better their circumstances. It, it It's wild to me to watch folks get shocked by the fact that we have an overclass that's happy to let people just get sick and die. And you're like, yeah, they've always been like that, actually. <laughs> Don't they care? No, absolutely not. No, they Um, do not. No. If they cared, all it would take is a sharecropper putting on a ball gown and saying, I will never be hungry again. And then all of a sudden they'll rally. But no. No. We put the plantation owners in that hero spot for some reason. Yeah. So to kind of take it back to like, I just want to connect this to current public health debacles a little bit. If you're a listener to Maintenance Phase, another great podcast debunking this, this one focuses on the food industry, diet culture, all of this stuff, food fads. Once I started looking into pellagra, I kind of started seeing the origins, maybe, of a lot of the health fads that we kind of currently deal with now. Well, you mean okay, like the so- whole grains or? Oh, yeah. Whole grain has a bit to do with it because, you know, people understood that processed grain had something to do with pellagra. And so they're like, oh, let's blame the technology. Well, really was the poverty. It wasn't the fact that people were eating milled grain. It was that they weren't eating anything else. So blaming technology is a great way to... Uh, Avoid thinking about the deeper problems, because if it's the new degerminators, like if it's the fault of this new milling technology, then it's not our fault for keeping people sick and poor. Right. You know, similarly, if we can just blame people for being too stupid to cook properly, then we don't have to take into effect that they can only afford three things, you know? So the fact that we in the current kind of food and sustainability movement blame technology for nutritional and health problems kind of rings a bell there. That is drawing on a very deep, at this point, over a century old tradition of let's blame technology because that's easier than taking responsibility for the fact that people are so poor that they can only afford these highly processed foods. We don't have to take responsibility for the fact that people have no time to cook for themselves because they're too busy working for the man. So they're using this very fast, very easy, very cheap thing to cook that the overclass chose to feed to them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So like fast food, I see in a very similar vein. It makes me really curious when people talk about how like quote unquote addictive it is and i'm like well i mean cheeseburgers taste good but i'm not does anybody really lay awake at night thinking i'm in withdrawal right now no usually when you feel a craving for them stop and think for a minute because not only are you hungry but you're also often in some kind of time crunch some kind of stress crunch that is making the easy access and the rapidity very very appealing to you i don't think it's just a taste thing i think the time inconvenient like I hate the word convenience because we use that to like shame people, but the accessibility of the food, the immediacy of it, when you need food, you need food, right? Right. And so if you're in a situation where you're on a very quick lunch break, you maybe you're commuting, you have to be in your car. Of course, that's going to be appealing to you. That's what your mind is going to go to. And I think 
the way we kind of like have this hysteria around how junk food is addicting. I'm like, we are really not looking at the whole picture here. A lot of it's about time. But the other part of it is about the ecosystem in which the food operates, right? So we're talking about the pellagra. We're talking about subsistence level, right? People didn't have the option of adding in additional foods Mm -hmm. that would contain niacin or vitamin B. When we're talking about, you know, the problematic calorie load or the cheap ingredients or the CAFO, the disgusting CAFO conditions of Mm -hmm. factory raised and mass market produced hamburgers and cheese and chicken sandwiches and things like that. If people aren't dying of related complications to these foods, they'd be dying from something else related to the poverty and lifestyle of low wage, low income labor that they're doing. Yeah. Right. The biorhythms that people end up with chronic conditions with, you know, we have a lot built into this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't pellagra, it would have been something else. Yeah. And I have a whole chapter in my book on this. And this is kind of something I leave to like the maintenance phase and the diet and health research professionals, because I'm an agriculture person. I'm mostly looking at the agricultural and like kind of economic side of this. So I, I leave the nutrition research to the professionals, but there's a lot of things that we are blaming on diet, you know, like, oh, we've got all these diabetes and heart disease and cancer and asthma and all this stuff. If you actually look at the research, it is actually very hard to get diet to explain that. A lot of it comes down to people aren't sleeping enough because they're working all the time or they're working swing shifts or they're working like just late long haul trucking shifts there. You can't fix that with diet. You could feed this person who's driving long haul late night trucking shifts, a perfectly balanced diet, and they're still going to be sick because they're not sleeping well. Right. And that sticks you in a whole cycle of, you know, stress hormones, you know, your nervous system is on too high alert. And that actually does wear you down and break you down over time endocrinologists, the people who study hormone systems and all that stuff, diabetes as well, because they can deal with hormones. Insulin is a hormone. Could tell you all about this. Again, highly recommend folks check out maintenance phase, other like, let's actually look at all the health research behind this. That's not something this podcast is well equipped to do. I just want to make a quick detour into that just to say, again, we have this culture of blaming all the poor people are sick on their own personal behavior or on technology, because then we don't have to look at poverty. And this pellagra outbreak is a lot of where that comes from. That's where that got cemented into popular culture very early on. So learning more about it has been really, really interesting to me. Along the lines of a 2020 phenomenon that illustrates this point as well, because you mentioned asthma, a lot of low-income housing is also built right up next to highways or in lowland areas where VOCs and NOx could basically get an extra dose of concentration due to the natural geographic formations. But We actually solved a lot of air pollution in 2020 when people stopped commuting. And surprisingly, a number of those jobs kind of were like, oh, we actually, you can continue to function at home. Oh, oh, we didn't, we didn't need this 20 minute to two hour long commute every day. Holy wow. What on earth? But again, the human health impacts of staying in the car for that long every day, again, having to eat convenience or subsistence food, not having enough time to cook or prepare meals or engage. And again, not that people would necessarily do that anyway. I like Chinese food for lunch. I don't usually cook it myself. That's one of those things. But they were also breathing in and creating all these NOx and VOC emissions from cars and oh, shocking, after years of saying that the building envelopes were the main source of pollution, oddly enough, we managed to get a tremendous amount of clean air from just removing all these cars from the road in unnecessary commutes. Yeah. Well, something else that I looked into when I was 
you know, doing my brief chapter in my book about all this public health problems that we're blaming on food actually come from a lot of other things that are related to overwork, capitalism, yada, yada. Capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these capitalism. are just sing it. Capitalism. <laughs> Capitalismo. So these are diseases not of poor diet, but of exploitation. Right. And if we call them that, then we would have to riot or something. So we're not going to do that, right? So mm. one of the things, interestingly enough, was so lack of sleep can be an issue. It's so funny to me that lack of sleep is kind of framed nowadays as like, oh, these poor dumb idiots don't sleep enough. Because like back in the day, it comes from lack of time generally with which to sleep, right? Between work, commute, family responsibilities, all that stuff, then there's just not a lot of time left. And sleep is where it tends to come out of. Because back in the day, like, you know, before the last 10 or 20, 30 years, when we were talking about how poor people are lazy, dumb, and stupid, it was they sleep too much. So just a total 180 now that we found out that lack of sleep can cause health problems. Now it's people's fault for not doing it enough. Fascinating. Anyway. That is fascinating. I know. Just bottom line, like, we have to find a way to blame the poor. We just gotta, you know, yeah. we have to do it. Whatever they're doing is wrong. They have mm -hmm. to do the other thing. And then that mm -hmm. will also be wrong. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just to be clear. Yeah. One more thing that I found in kind of the public health and fad diet discourse that might come from Pellegro. This is really interesting to me. The whole like alkalinized food or alkaline diet thing might come back to the Pellegro epidemic. Yeah. Okay. So get this. <laughs> this one's good. Okay. So and I'm probably getting this wrong because I don't actually subscribe that much to fad diet nonsense. Um, you don't start your day with a cup of alkaline water with a squeeze of lemon juice in it. <laughs> I just like you to don't? watch it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> ah, so yeah, the whole alkaline diet, like you need to eat enough alkaline or basic foods to kind of keep your bloodstream in check, you know, because your kidneys don't do anything. They're just there for fun. God put them in there uh, for decoration. They look cool and hurt when people punch them. Right. Evolution was like, I just want a thing in your back where people can hit you and it hurts a lot. That's why that's, those are here. That's right. Yeah. So the whole alkaline diet concept is people are eating foods that are too acidic and it's putting your blood pH out of whack, yada, right? So I found people talking about that during the plague epidemic in like 1900 and 1940. Because again, when we're talking about corn processing, the way that corn was originally cooked, you know, by indigenous peoples in the US <clears throat> and elsewhere was you soak it in a hot lye solution. All right. So we talked about this a little bit last time we talked. It's called nishtimalization. And that's the quote, the proper way to cook it. Right. And that's actually how you make hominy. So we had this whole conversation in 1900 to 1940s about how these poor, dumb, poor people don't know how to cook. Right. They're not doing nishtimalization because they were starting with grits that you couldn't nishtimalize because they were pre-ground. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, like deliberate ignoring of the economic circumstances. Right. But that was kind of a discourse that was starting to happen as early as, you know, the plague epidemic, 1900 through 1940, is these pores aren't making their hominy right. you got to soak it in alkaline water because that'll put your blood pH right and you won't get sick. Strange. Yeah. The pores are too dumb to cook and ignored indigenous people. Like in the early 20th century, we had that discourse going on. So obviously like, they hadn't quite figured out the niacin chemistry yet. And so that's why they thought it was a pH problem. Like there, there was kind of a generalized somewhat awareness that corn and corn preparation had something to do with pellagra. They were still trying to figure out a lot of the details. I think the Joseph Goldberger nailed it down in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, I think. So we, we had a decade or two of total ignorance and a couple decades of willful ignorance after he figured that Fantastic. out. Fantastic. Just, yeah. that's the best way to end a decade of ignorance is to do it more. Doing um, it, yeah. Was there any public action or requests for wheat flour instead of corn flour or to shift i mean it was more expensive yeah okay yeah. so that was it, it wasn't grits you know after a right. certain while you get used to eating grits and cornbread so that's mm -hmm. just what your diet is the south had 
biscuits. I have been in the South. I attest to this. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're soft wheat biscuits and stuff, but they're, again, they're higher end food. How are you going to know who's who if everybody's got nice biscuits? As I die. Yeah. So I think last time we talked, it was kind of about the logistics of how Pelegra happened. And today we've been talking about the cultural impact. And it's wild to me too, because again, nationalization, it really occupies center stage in this as well. It should. It's a very important food processing thing that doesn't get enough credit. That being said, indigenous peoples were eating a very well-rounded diet. They weren't just eating nationalized corn. So if you're only eating nationalized corn and other nice and deficient things, then whether or not you nationalize is going to make a big difference. But if you're also eating game, fish, birds, nuts, berries, you know, all kinds of other things, it doesn't really matter so much how you process your corn. So I think kind of focusing on that really misses the big picture of people are eating a very restricted diet. That's the only circumstance that it really matters that much how you process your food. Right. You know, whether or not you nationalize. And that kind (laughs) kind of gets to the point of like dispossession of land so people can no longer hunt, you know, or fish. Also plays a huge part in why they're getting pellagra. You know, like this is why people on reservations were also getting pellagra at a very high rate. It's not because they didn't know how to cook corn. It's because they were dispossessed. They had all the resources stolen. So mm-hmm. again, it's very important to look at this as a poverty issue, not just like, a, oh, these dummies didn't know how to cook issue. But yeah, the alkaline diet thing just like got my attention so much because it was it was just wild to see like what sounds like a very modern wild health food fed have these roots that go back this far and that are directly related to blaming poor people for being sick. Like, oh, this is where this fad came from. It was made for this. That's fun. I remember reading a New York Times editorial when the South Beach diet and like the Mediterranean diet really launched in the early 2000s. And they were like, this diet may work fantastic for most people. And, you know, it's lean proteins and it's lots of vegetables and it's very limited carbs, but it's just too expensive. It's too expensive for the average person. And I was like, wow, you are sitting on the point. (laughs) and you just missed it like it just went right Mm -hmm. whoa bam right over you Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. people would choose to eat these things if they could afford to eat these things the reason that they can't afford to eat these things is because of exploitation of exploitation (laughs) is it the bottom of all these public health problems who knew Mm Like a last fun note on nationalization, and I swear we're going to get onto the Midwest because it has committed many crimes and we need to talk <laughs> about them. Nationals, it's a way to process food, right? And so what it does is you soak corn kernels that are dry in this hot lye solution and it loosens the seed coats off. Like, you know, if you're eating popcorn, it's like the hard shell coat that kind of gets stuck in your teeth. So mm-hmm. it loosens that part. So when you stir it, it kind of comes off and you get a bunch of like naked kernels that are swollen and kind of puffy. That's like your hominy grits kind of thing. And you can smash them by hand and make a nice dough that's just mm-hmm. made of you know, corn kernels. That's what nationalization does. That's what it's for. I feel like if it were invented now, health food people would rip it to shreds because it's no longer whole grain because you lost the seed coat. Oh no. Yeah. You've lost a lot of fiber when you nationalize, right? That you rinse those holes off and you get rid of them. It's a caustic chemical process. So it's dangerous. It alters the starch, like it gelatinizes the starch. Again, that's why it makes a nicer dough, why it softens it up. And it also enhances the flavor. Like it, it's kind of the difference between like cornmeal and like corn chip taste. It's a little bit sweeter, kind of nuttier, but just like a bigger flavor. So it's an artificial, harsh chemical process that removes a lot of the fiber and enhances flavor and makes it addictive. That's nishtimalization. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to thank nishtimalization for my corn chips. Yeah. So it's, it's funny to see how it's kind of you know, like a very good and useful and decent and noble food processing method. I think almost like it's fetishized a little bit right now is like, it's the solution to a lot of things. You know, this is why those dumb poor people didn't know how to do it. And that's why they got sick. And we know better, thank God. But if it were invented today, the same people would hate it. <laughs> I grew up with a lot of new vegetarians. 
maybe communities. And let me tell you, brown lentils are never the same once you've had them when people didn't know how to cook them. And I think that, yeah, this is the same type of deal, you know, Mm -hmm. like just because it's relatively raw does not mean it should be ingested by a human body. Yeah. Are these like the ones that keep their shape when you cook them or are these the ones that turn to mush? I have to know. Oh no. These are the ones that keep their shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like eating water beads. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, they're great if you cook them right. They're great if you are, you know, making Indian food and have spices Mm -hmm. and cook them right. But that was, I think, a culture issue. That wasn't what we're talking about here today. So we can cut that whole segment out there. (laughs) Yeah. I would say like everyone at every socioeconomic class is capable of bad cooking. Yes. Yeah. But white people in this country are particularly good at bad cooking. Yeah. From my experience. Yeah, just brief tangent. We went on this family trip up to, I'm going to have to apologize, upstate New York, the Finger Lakes, this summer. And we were in the grocery store and we're like, this is why this part of the country is obsessed with food. It's terrible. (laughs) We're like desperate for a way out. I'm just like, where's the barbecue? We're trying to make tacos or fajitas or something that night. Like that was our assigned cooking night. So we were trying to find like something that you could use as taco seasoning in the grocery store. There was a whole aisle of so-called spices and not a single thing that you could use as taco seasoning. It was grim. I don't know how they did it. Wrong part of the country. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just like, what is happening? (laughs) Every variety of tomato product known to mankind Mm-hmm. and most seasonings that would come out of the southern mediterranean but no on the tacos yeah there's 34 different kinds of apple butter a whole aisle of like various italian seasonings but not a single taco yep. like we got cumin and red peppers at work yeah but... and that's fine that's what you got to do but i was intrigued at the choices <laughs> made in stocking a back to a uh, colonizer immigrant story in terms mm-hmm. of that very present here you know yeah yeah well, we got her done. We got her done. Well done. We're resourceful and we made it happen. Yeah, innovate. It was hard to find the cumin though. <laughs> if you had come a little further east, we would have taken care of you. But yeah, yeah, that's rough. Oh, upstate New York agriculture in the Finger Lakes is a whole episode on its own. Today we're talking about the Midwest. The uh, Midwest! <laughs> I love you, a bushel and a peck. Okay, continue on. Right. Okay. So this is speaking of someone who has done some time in agriculture in the Midwest. My first job was detasseling corn, moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know, later on in high school, surrounded by dairies, a lot of cornfields used to make silage. So we're not unfamiliar with the milieu of farming in the Midwest. So now we're going to talk about some things about why the Midwest is the way it is now and how this one period, you know, 1900 through 19. 20, you know, like the first half of the Pelagra epidemic really shaped the Midwest and by extension, the food system in the whole United States, how the Dust Bowl grew out of this period, actually, Mm -hmm. some really weird farmland real estate stuff that happened as a result of Jim Crow that has a lot of interesting parallels to today's housing real estate market. You know, we talk about all the ghost towns in the Midwest and the Great Plains, and we don't talk about where they came from and maybe why they were doomed to be temporary this whole time. So today we're getting into that. That's going to be some good stuff. All right. I'm really excited about this. Right. Oh, okay. So we're gonna Yeah. That's good. Stretch. Yeah. I've been like kind of stiff. We should talk about American Gothic too. So this famous painting of the old guy with the pitchfork and his not as wife, the daughter. daughter. Yeah. The folks in the the nice house in the background. We're gonna talk about that later on. So let's just look for that. Art movements, camp, farm wealth. It's gonna be great. 
So to take it back, so we had South Carolina alone importing 70 to $100 million worth of food in 1917, in 1917 dollars. If you extrapolate that out to the whole South, that's coming out and in, in, put it into today's money. That's about $20 billion worth of a year worth of food imports that were going to the South. So that would have been corn grits, uh, ground corn, and salt pork, molasses they would have been getting from somewhere else. But those are the two main diet items for poor people was Salt pork, you know, fat back, whatever you want to call it, goes by many names, and ground corn. So those are two things that are products of the Midwest. So this was a lot of the Midwest business at the time. We have, again, this mythology of like, oh, the family farms, they used to be small and independent and self-sufficient. And no, they were raising cash crops to exploit a very exploited market. <laughs> so this is kind of going back to how we talked about kind of early on in our first talk. The small, humble family farmers of, you know, Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania were feeding the slave trade is what they were doing right with all their corn wheat pig beef exports so that whole system just kind of like you know evolved over time as it moved west to feed the internal sharecropping which is just like the new version of the old thing right so this sparked off what we call the golden age of midwestern agriculture the folks who do agrarian history 1900 through 1920 this was 20 years when family farms made good money and when I say family farms, I mean people who owned their land because the tenants and sharecroppers in the Midwest were going to get to them and they were making very bad money. And that helps explain <laughs> things about how the history. Unfolded. You mean there was the exploitation within the exploitative system? It was like a Russian nesting doll of sharecropping. <laughs> it's just, you laugh and you don't cry. It's just like sharecropping is not funny. It's just the fact that we've managed to forget it and that we have all these landowners who made massive amounts of wealth on it are now portraying themselves as poor suffering family farmers that is funny so yeah that's where the hell of a narrative switch it really is it really is like i love to exploit people make tons and tons of money off of it wait a couple generations you know kick these people off the land wait a couple generations and then launder myself as the people who got kicked off the land even though i'm still here and maybe there's like a story there i don't know <laughs> oh my god all right tell me about this golden age of agriculture so golden ah. age for now who owned land at this time you know like american gothic guys gotcha yeah again like it, it's kind of like agriculture today it's kind of a motley crew of like very wealthy like investors you know and there's also kind of like your small town local power players you lived in Fayetteville, you know how that works that's true <laughs> And Rob is reading a book right now called Wastelands about the North Carolina hog industry. And he's, because he's lived with me for a long time, he's absorbing the ways that the narrative kind of got framed as like small farmers versus big farmers. And he's kind of looking through this and he's like, well, all the big farmers say they're small farmers too. So, and they're going yes. out there and they're getting laws changed in the name of protecting small farmers. And so this whole discourse of like do X, Y, Z to save the small farmer is a hell of a trap. Anyway, I think we're on a we're on a tangent now. Save the small farmer that does exactly the same and to scale farming practices as the large industrial owned, quote unquote, farms, including leaving their hog waste in lagoons for the next hurricane to wash down into our drinking water. Yeah, well, not exactly. It's not that small farmers and big farmers like the big corporate farmers do the same things. It's that the big corporate farmers call themselves small farmers mm -hmm. and the actual small farmers with smaller properties who are not doing the industrial stuff are making all their money at big city jobs that pay quite well and they're using their farm as a tax break to build wealth and they make up probably about 60 percent of u.s farms yeah you have this population of fairly wealthy people who can run around calling themselves small farmers who actually have no incentive to make agriculture work as a food system <laughs> so that does interesting things to our food system and to our political i'm just trying to think if there's like a corollary in other industries i guess i'm gonna have no, to that's on, why it, on that a bit yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe small family sweatshop owners 
it's probably the the closest thing. They're a big force in the garment industry. You have a lot of like just yeah small sweatshops that contract out to the big guys and they're like mm-hmm. ah we need labor laws to be easy because otherwise we'll go out of business and no we're not Shein we just take contracts from Shein and they're subcontractors we're not part of this system we're like the little guy mm-hmm. <laughs> except again like that's it's different because small farmers are actually like can be a very distinct financial category and logistical category from the big guys the big guys they're family owned they can call themselves small farmers they're running big feedlots and doing all this pollution so that Smithfield doesn't have to take responsibility. So Smithfield <laughs> can say, no, you pass laws, you're hurting these small family farmers. Meanwhile, the actual small family farmers, quote unquote, if you actually go by how much money they're making off a farm, there's no nice way to say it. Hobby farmers, that's what they are. Like, it's, that's supposed to be some kind of curse word, I guess. Like when you call someone a hobby farmer who makes their money being a lawyer and then they spend their money on their farm and you say that's a hobby farm, they're like, how dare you? I'm real. So like 60% of U.S. farmers are hobby farmers. They're using their farm as a tax shelter. They have a day job somewhere else, which is how they actually make their living. And that's part of why the statistics of small farms are so, like, low. Number one, they tend to cheat on their taxes and just don't report a lot of income because that's easy to do with a farm. What? Yeah. Number two, they use their farm. What? Yeah. Number two, they often use the farm on purpose to lose money for the tax breaks. So, like, of course they make no money on the farm. Anyway, so that was a digression to farm finances. Small farmer does not mean what people think it does. And that kind of goes further back into history than we might think, too. So let's get into 1900 to 1920, golden age of Midwestern agriculture. What was going on then and what it had to do with farm finances, how people were making decisions about land, and how that created a lot of problems like farm depopulation and also the Dust Bowl. And it was all fueled by pellagra blood money. Oh, my God. Yeah, so good. Okay, so... Again, the golden age of Midwestern agriculture, we're talking a 20-year time period, 1900 through 1920. Before 1900, farmers weren't making a lot of money. Every once in a while, you'd hit like a boom period when grain prices were high, you'd make a lot, and then it would go away in a few years. After 1920, you start having like the quote-unquote agribusiness consolidation era. But in that 20-year span, 1900 through 1920, farmers who owned land in the Midwest and to some extent the Great Plains were making money hand over fist for 20 straight years which is weird. So let's talk about why that happened. We've already kind of alluded to it a little bit. Okay, so let's talk about why that happened, why 1900 through 1920 were amazing for Midwestern farmers, the economic changes that caused, and then the fallout. Okay, so 1900 through 1920, we already talked about pellagra being a big part of why the Midwest was making so much money. The South was sourcing all of its corn, you know, from the Midwest, most of its corn from the Midwest as cheap rations, and salt pork, which came from hog feedlots in the Midwest. The Ohio Valley was full of like corn and cattle feedlots like starting in the 1830s. So feedlots mm-hmm. are a much older tradition than people think. They're not That's a modern Yeah, they're not a modern post-World War II agribusiness problem. They are a this is the laziest way to raise cattle problem. And that's been the case for a long time. Yeah, if you have access to a lot of corn, which they did. So again, feedlots date back to at least the 1830s in the United States. Not a new problem. So 1900 through 1920, we have High food prices, basically. So if you're a farmer, you can lose money basically one of two ways. Either your crop fails and you have nothing to sell. That's kind of like the classic mode of crop failure that I think most of us think about. But in those cases, if your crop failed, usually it's because of bad weather. And that means a lot of your neighbor's crops failed too. So there's a lower supply on the market. So prices go up. Right. Right. So bad years, if you can manage to be the one guy who has a crop, you're going to do amazing. In a good year, you have a good crop, but so does everyone else. So the price goes way down. That's kind of, you know, how things, I don't want to say they stay in balance. It's a very dynamic equilibrium. Good word. 
Yeah. So I don't want to say that's how things stay in balance, but that's the usual situation. You usually get screwed one way or the other. Like either you have no crop or like everyone does. <laughs> so the golden age of Midwestern agriculture was this freak 20 year period when everyone had, for the most part, pretty good crops and prices were high for 20 years in a row. Because the way to get out of that dynamic is to find a new market, particularly yeah. a captive market, a market yeah. that can't exist without you. Yeah, and a market that can't exist without a police state, you know, it's a beautiful a thing. A police state. Yeah, so the South was importing a lot of food from the Midwest all along, but starting in 1900, we had that change in how the milling technology started. What we need to talk about now is why Pellagra went 1900 through 1940, but the golden age of Midwestern agriculture only went 1900 through 1920. You know, yes, like, what happened? Why did yeah. it cut off in the middle? Yeah, so a couple things. The bow weevil. <laughs> <laughs> not the bull weevil it's the bull weevil so okay there are a few words that i can't pronounce not with a southern accent because you just never hear them said that way so bull weevil is one of them like you can't pronounce the whole thing it's bow weevil <laughs> there's oh, one all. <laughs> <laughs> like when does that ever come up in iowa it just doesn't right so bull weevil is an insect it's native to mexico and further on south because there are cotton species that are native to the americas so it just adapted to live on them. It'll lay its eggs in the little cotton fruit that eventually dries up and splits open to like release its puffy cotton white insides, right? So as its grubs are growing up in there, it'll just mess up the cotton. Bow weevil doesn't fly so good. Like it doesn't really travel. It likes to walk. Okay. It's not a long distance traveler. So as long as cotton was only being grown in like in the far eastern United States, you know, along the coast, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, that was fine, but once it hit Texas uh -oh. and into Mexico, then you had a solid highway for this pedestrian, slow-moving, has-to-walk-everywhere insect to walk all the way clear up to Virginia, right? Oh, God. Yeah, so I think it was like in the late like 1880s, 1890s that it started moving through Texas, right? This thing moves real slow, like maybe I think three miles a year. It was just like... <laughs> the slow march of the bull weevil. The slow march of the bow wheel. Yeah, once we built this highway of monoculture across the entire south of the United States, then it had this path to march on. So it's slowly moving east and north. So it's sweeping across the south starting you know, in the early 1900s, late 1890s, early 1900s. So what that did was it kind of broke apart that cozy little, I'm going to make you share crop cotton on my place in exchange for food system. Like it just didn't quite work anymore. So southern landowners found that they had to let people grow food. So the bull weevil devastated cotton, right? Just mm -hmm. knocked it right down. And it yeah, was, like they, as we said, invasive and kind of pervasive. Yeah. So they found ways <laughs> to kind of bring cotton back after that. The economics of growing cotton after that were quite a bit different. And in order to make it work, you actually had to grow food. You can no longer afford to import food from the Midwest anymore. You had to grow it locally yourself. Apologies to all my Southern cotton landowner listeners. The bull weevil is the best thing that ever happened to the South. <laughs> the bull weevil are very larval savior here yeah hmm. there's a statue to it somewhere oh my god where's bull weevil monument in alabama yeah there's a bull weevil monument in enterprise alabama oh. i can't say that normally i'm like there's a bull weevil monument in enterprise alabama it just feels right it's delightful yes i'm gonna send you the wikipedia article on it so you can enjoy this with me Thank really you. quick yeah i think okay so it disrupted this economic equilibrium. I was balancing the Midwest grain imports and the Southern excruciating poverty. Yeah. So if you take a look at this monument, it is like kind of a neoclassical-ish style. It is a woman in a toga, like holding a bull weevil on a pedestal over her head. It's like, it's glamorous. 
It's very, yeah. She appears to be holding it aloft. Tribute erected by the citizens of Enterprise in 1919 to show their appreciation to an insect, the boll weevil, for its profound influence on the era's agriculture and economy, hailing the beetle as a herald of prosperity. It stands as the world's first monument built to honor an agricultural pest. That is delightful. <laughs> that is honestly delightful. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she's great. So yeah, the bow weevil kind of forced that king cotton sharecropping system to open up a little bit and to start actually growing more food in the South. Enterprise Alabama and other places were very, very excited about this. The Midwest, had they been paying attention, would not have been excited about it. But I don't think the Midwest was really paying attention because what was also happening as the bow weevil was starting to move across the South, World War I. <gasps> yeah. The trenches. Oh, at World War One and the Russian Revolution. So, right. yeah, Europe can't grow its own food because so many of its fields are crisscrossed by trenches, right? They're doing trench warfare. So you have this massive demand for mobilization, more food, and at the same time, decreased capacity to grow it. And thanks to the Russian Revolution, the Black Sea wheat exporting region is not doing so hot. They're like mm -hmm. having a little bit of like trouble getting wheat out of the same place we're having trouble getting it out of right now. <laughs> It just keeps happening. Um, Shocking. Yeah. So Black Sea uh, wheat exports, you know, from the area that is currently the nation of Ukraine, also like just southeastern Russia, Siberia, like around that time, I think they were already trying to open up a lot of Siberia to wheat colonies. Those also were having a tough time. It was just hard to move stuff around Russia during the revolution, you know? You know, war mm -hmm. tends to disrupt supply chains and yes. food tends mm -hmm. to be, how shall we call it? Um, Weaponized. Weaponized. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we had An this army moves on its belly. It really as does. I believe the maxim goes. Right. It's like the march on the stomach or whatever. So, so as... wheat is a problem. Getting yeah. wheat is a problem. Yeah. So as the bow weevil is kind of like moving out of Texas across like Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, it's starting to cut into grain markets in that area. They're, those areas are starting to grow their own food, but it's not making that much of a difference because there's so much disruption in other parts of the world that's picking up the market. Right. You know, before it really starts to affect the Midwest sales too much, they have this other huge area of sales to Europe. So they don't really notice. I don't know. I think the Midwest didn't really notice that this was going on. I mean, it's possible that they did. They're, I don't have access to a lot of detailed notes from the time, but what I have found doesn't suggest a lot of awareness that <laughs> this has happened. They don't seem to understand that their market is going away. The attitude in the Midwest at the time was like, God loves us. Oh my God. Like, we're just such good people. And, like, we're finally getting the money we deserve. And, like, yay! There's a, super complacent. It's ridiculous. So this is kind of the environment that American Gothic is about. Grant Wood, it's so funny because, like, people asked him about it. They said, is this satire? And he swore up and down that it wasn't. But, like, then you would kind of, you know, talk about what he was trying to portray in that painting. And you're like, honey, that's called satire. <laughs> to paint the picture for the audience, if you don't know the painting, you probably have seen it. American Gothic is the old guy with the pitchfork, you know, and his not wife, his daughter, looking very severe. And there, there's it's a house. seen as an epitome of puritanical mores in yeah. some way, but it's set against a house. And is there a grain silo in the backdrop? Yeah. So let me pull it up so we can both take yeah, a look at it. Uh, at I love to do like art criticism in audio only format. I think that's the only way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I saw a rendering of this with some of the Muppets mm -hmm. at a fast food chain restaurant uh, a couple weeks ago. It was quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, the Red Barn is in the distance and a mm -hmm. steeple is mm -hmm. in the 
vaguely background. So what's wild about this, I saw a Grant Wood quote that I've never been able to find the source to, so take it for what it's worth. But, you know, he said, I visualize this guy being, you know, like a banker or he owns a lumberyard and he comes home and he puts on his barn coat and mucks out the cows. And I was like, thank you, Grant Wood. That was actually how a lot of landowning farmers did it was they had a day job, much like they do today. And the farm was kind of a place that they, it's like when you buy a house and your house is kind of a repository for wealth. Farms are like that just more so, right? You have more land, you have more house, you have more buildings, you have herds on it. A small farm plays a lot of the same economic function that a house does in terms of a family's economic security. So they can talk all day about how they're just a small farmer. Okay, if you're comparing yourself to the bajillionaires, you know, over at Cargill, sure, yeah, you're just a little guy. But if you compare yourself to the run-of-mill homeowner, you're actually quite well off. (laughs) So that's, I think, what this painting is. Yeah, it's like, well, if you only compare yourself to rich people, of course you're going to feel broke. Like It's just truly wealthy people. So if you look at this painting, I think that's kind of what it's getting at. Because the farmer and his daughter are dressed in very, it's, I want to say like poor people drag. You know, it's a very humble barn coat. There's overalls. She's got like a calico apron on. But she's also wearing a brooch. She slipped a little bit. The house behind them has a little gothic window in it. It's two stories. It's made of milled wood. There's like some nicely turned finials on the porch columns and stuff like that. So this is not a poor people's home. They got a little lace curtain. If you look on the back, there's some tropical houseplants on the port. There's like Sanzevaria and a begonia. So these are things mm-hmm. that need some extra health care in a place with harsh winters like Iowa. They've got a barn in the back that looks quite new. So these folks are standing out here in front of like some very clear signs of wealth and comfort, dressed in poor people drag, holding a pitchfork. And that's American Gothic. So it goes to the sense of reinventing the narrative, right? Because if you set this standard, right, for what is poor, if you will, or severe, if you will, right? Where does the shantytown, the shack, the sharecroppers, you know, very humble abode, where does that fit into the narrative? Yeah, exactly. When you have rich people dressing up in poor drag, this is what poverty looks like. All those bums living in tents on the street, like that's a different thing besides poverty. That's just like dereliction. We're poor and we're deserving poor and we deserve things and you should give them to us. Just really quickly, the house in the background, if they're living in Iowa, the trees have already been cut down in Iowa by this time. Mm-hmm. The trees that were there, because they did have forests, are taken away for timber. So if you are having a newish wood frame house in Iowa in, I think, 1930 was the year this was put together, that's coming in by rail. So you have folks who are making their money off of long distance food trade in order to buy a house built on long distance trade. So that kind of like clashes with the image of like, we're local, we're rooted, we're part of this community, we grew out of the earth. My understanding is Grant Wood was not a straight man. And I'm just like, oh, this is camp. (laughs) (laughs) No, so he he nailed the poor person drag and just like Mm -hmm. the kind of how you managed to depict how these people are actually kind of sitting at this pinnacle of long distance trade, making all their money off of long distance trade while portraying themselves as like local, rooted, salt of the earth, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's fantastic. It's beautiful. Yeah. So that's American Gothic. So that was the mentality in the Midwest at the time is they were just getting really excited to play house and make all the money that they deserve to be making because God loves us. And if we're making lots of cash, again, Calvinism, that's just a sign that we're doing things right. It's not a sign that the market winds are blowing in our favor. It's not a sign that people are starving to death in the South on our shit that we're sending them. It's not a sign that we are doing the right thing economically with a social justice mission. 
mm-hmm. at all. It's literally just prosperity gospel, mm-hmm. where if you have wealth, theoretically, you are already blessed. Yeah. So how do you think folks like this, when they got together and talked about farm policy, how do you think they felt about Jim Crow? I mean, <clears throat> any chance they would have been against it because they were making $20 billion on it collectively per year? To be honest, I mean, <laughs> we're... we're... <laughs> What's the resistance to Jim Crow among the white people, right? Like the Quakers, you know, that's people who had been previously oppressed in their own countries or because of their sociopolitical beliefs, right? The Mm -hmm. socialists. Otherwise, you had a lot of people who were very anti-integration, even among the trade unions. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're curious as to why Jim Crow and racial segregation managed to stay the law of the land in the United States, you know, and allowed to continue at the federal level for so long... Look at American Gothic. There's your answer. You know, uh, <laughs> you got a lot of folks making a ton of money off of Jim Crow, not to mention industrialists in the North. You have all these like poor black farmers in the South fleeing Jim Crow, fleeing the Klan, you know, in fear of their lives, getting on trains and going North to work in factory towns, more or less as scabs. Um, you know, like they're just happy to not be in the South anymore. Nobody's thrilled to take low paying jobs, right? But you're looking at a very different socioeconomic calculation than maybe the trade unions who assumed that they would have this job market to themselves forever are looking at, right? You don't necessarily have a lot of context for what's going on if you're coming from the Jim Crow South because like news was actively suppressed there. So you're not going to know when you get up north that like there's a strike going on that we're trying to deal with, right? And factory owners really exploited that tension between black newcomers from the South and industrial areas and white workers there. And like you said, the trade unions kind of got in on it because this is a thing that has been an issue in American labor organizing is you get kind of like white-centered trade unions viewing other workers of other races as the enemy as opposed to capitalists, which is- Competition. I know, a fascinating tack for a labor union to take. And boy, I hope we've learned our lesson because that was stupid and self-defeating. Tis, tis. Yeah, but it was not, like Jim Crow, I want to emphasize, was not merely a Southern phenomenon. The entire country was making bank off of this thing. I would say like the property owning people in the entire country were making bank off of this thing. So in American Gothic, we get a window into one class of people who are profiting off of Jim Crow and Pellagra. Like these folks were making money hand over fist and causing a horrible disease and helping it stay, um, kind of helping it continue because it helped them economically. And that is the foundation of the American family farming Population in the Midwest, if you meet someone who's a family farmer of four or more generations in the Midwest, this is how they made their money. Pellagra. That is so exciting. Yeah. If you go and you look at, again, around in the Midwest, and we have a lot of conversations about these falling apart ghost towns and how sad it is that these things are falling apart. People are banning the heartland. We could ask ourselves what was filling the heartland, quote unquote heartland, with people in the first place. It was like a boom and bust food system that didn't actually work for people for most people who are in it i mean people who wanted to live to be mm-hmm. clear right i mean yeah. like yeah yeah this is why you have all these ghost it towns good at killing people yeah if you look at you know kind of these falling apart ghost towns in the midwest and the plains that we're actively eulogizing right now they the buildings were mostly built 1900 through 1920 they were built using this money and when the fire hose shut off these towns died so maybe we could ask ourselves, did they need to be there in the first place? That's a question we could ask ourselves, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> so World War I happens, right? Yeah. And it transitions into what? I mean, so mm-hmm. wheat becomes huge. Mm-hmm. The boll weevil wiping cotton out. So then subsistence agriculture is allowed back into sharecropping? Mm. 
to some extent. It's, I don't love to say like, oh, they allowed sharecroppers to grow food. I don't think it was more like a, we stopped enforcing the no food allowed policy, maybe. Just like stopped fighting people's will to live is what mm-hmm. the landowners did. Yeah. So the bull weevil is tanking exports to the South. But the Midwest didn't, I think, really necessarily notice because at the same time, exports to Europe were picking up. All right. So they're experiencing high prices this entire time through, you know, 1900 through 1920. So they're just having a high and it's amazing and it's great. And it all comes crashing down at the end of World War I. You know, it, it takes Europe a couple of years to kind of get back on its feet. Whatever was going on with the Russian Revolution, you know, may have kind of evened itself out. I don't know, like wheat exports from the Black Sea may have picked back up, but whatever happened between all these things, their market just suddenly disappeared around 1920. You know, between bow weevil and events in Europe, the Midwest's food export markets just vanished. So that was a huge problem. Yeah, that was a huge problem. So we have 20 years worth of inflated expectations. And that's not just like an emotional expectation. That is, we bought land for a certain amount of money per acre that assumed that corn was always going to be at this price. (laughs) (laughs) so if you own an acre of land in the midwest you know during this price high then you can make more money from owning that piece of land right which means the land itself is worth more so people are buying and selling land at these inflated prices a very large bubble a big old land bubble so the golden age of midwestern agriculture created a little bit of a land bubble And that set us up for some crazy stuff. We kind of describe a lot of the things that happened in 20th century agriculture as post-World War II phenomena. No, it all started in the 1920s. Well, it all started in like that 1900 through 1920 era is actually when it all dates back to. I think 19... Post-World War II is just when enough people who are alive today were around to see it. (laughs) Ah. Yeah. Thickens. Yeah. Okay. So to recap quickly, 1900 through 1920, if you own land in the Midwest... You're doing great. If you're a sharecropper, a tenant, you're not really getting so much of the revenue from the land you're working. It's the folks who own it who do. If you're a landowning farmer, you're just getting all these revenues from owning this land that is producing crops that are really valued on the world markets at this time, right? So they're thinking like, bounty, prosperity, God loves us. This is awesome. Land becomes worth more because you can get more money per acre by owning land. It becomes a preferred investment. So real estate prices go up. Let's talk sharecropping and tenant farming in the Midwest. So that's going to lay the groundwork for a lot of what happens next. It was not small family farmers kind of independently doing stuff on their own. 40% of the farmers in Iowa in 1920 were sharecroppers and tenant farmers, right? Which means a substantial fraction of the other 60% were like the lords of the manor in these operations, right? So the idea <clears throat> that the Midwest was just like this egalitarian little place of like little guys and little... Mm-mm, nope. That is PR. That is not what was happening. It simply replicated the power structures of other areas. And mm-hmm. yep. So it's kind of interesting, too, how the Midwest and the South had very similar economic structures, but also very different at the same time. And they kind of used like the minute differences in them to be like, we're totally different. We don't do things like that up here. But they were more alike than they were different. So let's talk about the different fashions in which they use this exploitative system of sharecropping. So in the South, sharecropping and tenancy, they weren't viewed as permanent. The people who are in those situations, I don't think necessarily viewed it as permanent because it was sold to people as, you know, you can work your way up. That was part of the deal, right? Was kind of convincing people, yeah, you can work your way up. It's a totally fair system. Like, just keep saving money. Oh, like you're in debt further. Oh, you're so dumb. Just work harder next time. So I think the Midwest kind of has this mythology that Southern sharecropping was permanent. And I'm like, you can't make it work as a permanent basis. (laughs) 
you got to let people at least think that it's temporary and they can work their way out. So y'all thinking you were the only people who lied and said you could work your way out? No, they did that in the South too. I've also heard people descended from Midwestern great landowners at this time insist that like, oh, but we loved our sharecroppers. It was different, which the Southern landowners also did. (laughs) This company is a family. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So a lot of the rhetoric that Midwestern landowners used to explain why they were different from the South was actually identical to how the South presented itself as well. (laughs) Well, really, I mean, if the formula works, why differentiate, Mm -hmm. deviate? Yeah. The Southerners borrowed it from the North. The Mm -hmm. Midwesterners borrowed it from the South. Mm -hmm. That's the way it goes. Yeah. It's kind of like how like Wall Street capitalists and drug dealers learn from each other's tactics. It's all extractive capitalism in the end, you know? That's true. Yeah. First one's free, but the next one will cost you. Yeah, correct. (laughs) Balloon mortgage, baby. So prepayment penalties. Yeah. The minute differences that we did have. So folks in the South could wind up in a multi-generational situation because if you're indebted to a landowner, then they can keep you around. They would do that. They're just insisting that you could work harder and get off next time, right? So there was a little bit more of a tendency towards more multi-generational tenure. Tenure, like, it implies you have rights to the land. Multi-generational captivity. In the Midwest, it was very much an up or out kind of thing. Like you would get, a lot of folks had one year leases and then you had to go. You know, every fall you look for new tenants. So the Midwestern strategy, and I want to emphasize this is not because Midwestern landowners were like smarter, better at their jobs, spiritually different. That's not the case. They were dealing with a population that was mostly white, whereas sharecroppers in the South were only about half white. I think this surprises people because we say sharecropping in the South, everyone assumes you mean black farmer. No, it means someone who sharecrops someone else's land. You can be white and do that. I think black America has done a much better job of remembering that this happened. And maybe that's why we have that impression. But again, in 1920, about half the sharecroppers in the South were white. That's why that myth of you can work your way up was so important. Yeah, white people to buy into your shit. So (laughs) So, but does this system in the Midwest create the same kind of insecurity that the food insecurity created for sharecroppers in the South? Yeah, so we're going to get into that. So in the North, you can't fill the land with cotton because it doesn't grow up there, right? The only things you could grow in the North really were food for food exports. And so food insecurity for subsistence farmers in the Midwest was different because they were growing food. You know, like it was easier to keep from keep some for years. Yeah, it was easier to keep some for yourself. They didn't have the tool available to prevent people from growing food the way they did in the South as much. That being said, like number two, yellow dent corn is like not the most edible thing for human consumption. And so it kind of in some ways, can fulfill the same purpose. If you have sharecroppers doing corn, they still have to get other food from other places, so that may give you an avenue, but it was less doable than it was in the South. And then, of course, if you're dealing with a mostly white sharecropping population, the court systems are less prejudiced against white sharecroppers, and so they had a little bit of an easier time getting their contracts enforced. So again, I want to emphasize, this is not because Midwestern landowners were better people, it's because they had different tools available at their disposal. So because they had sharecroppers with a little bit more access to the legal system and more access to food, They kept people from organizing by keeping them moving. So that's why it was one-year leases. was more the rule than it was in the South. And if you think that this is not an effective social control, I just want to point out that the very similar ethos is in place that keeps officers in the U.S. Army rotating every two years, by and large, that prevents them from theoretically gaining enough social capital in place to create an insurrection. Well, that's smart. I mean, you do want to kind of keep your military under control. Like, I get that. I'm just saying that, <laughs> you know, it's a very costly system for the U.S. government. And the reason that they do it is this, mm-hmm. is this ethos. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it is very effective. You keep people down and keep them from organizing and uniting against you by you being landed, you being permanent, and they're 
just in and out every single year, right? So that was the strategy in the Midwest. And you can't just tell people we're keeping you down by keeping you moving. It's time to piss off. I need to find a new guy, right? You can't just tell people that. So they had to come up with a rationale and an ethos behind it, right? So what they came up with in the Midwest was called the agricultural ladder. And that is the idea that you can kind of work your way up from hired hand to sharecropper to tenant farmer to actually buying your own place, getting a mortgage, and then being like a fully vested, you know, like landowning farmer, right? There's a ladder to this. I think nowadays we kind of have this impression that family farming back in the day was traditional and you grew up on a farm and you just kind of like grew into the farmer role and replaced your dad. That is not how they explained it to themselves at the time. That's not how they rolled back no. in the golden era Midwest. So what was it billed as? Well, the agricultural ladder is what they called it. So yeah, it's like an apprentice slash journeyman system. So anyone who's been to grad school is going to, this is going to be familiar to you. You know, say you grew up on a farm or you don't grow up on a farm. Either way, you start out by being a hired hand on someone else's farm. You work for like hourly wages that are very low, but you may get room and board and like the farmer's wife will patch your pants. So you're like part of the household, like you're a retainer in the household if you're a hired hand. So this shows up in Wizard of Oz, actually. The Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, spoilers, and the Tin Man <laughs> are... Uh, Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. yeah. Dorothy has... like A lot of the movie is Dorothy basically having a dream or a vivid hallucination based on three farm workers on her family's farm. They were hired hands. So again, it's it's wild to have like Hollywood artifacts left over from this time when the agricultural ladder was still a thing because you can point to it and be like, oh yeah, the three guys in the Wizard of Oz, hired hands. So they were kind of like members of the household. Ideally, you know, you're not getting paid much in this stage, but your cost of living is very low. It's kind of like nowadays, I think the farm intern is kind of how we're doing this. So ideally you save up enough money that you can become a sharecropper. Ooh, you're moving up in the world. Now oh, you're a sharecropper. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But like, don't worry, not one of those like poor Southern sharecroppers. You're like a Midwestern sharecropper. And that means something in this world. Wow. Right. Because you're part of the boom, the mm -hmm. boom economy. Because things are better up here. So sharecropping in the Midwest function largely like the South. You get about, you know, a certain share of what you grow and the boss gets a share of what you grow. And because you don't have your own mule or plow, you can't afford seeds. You're basically getting all that stuff on loan from your landlord same as in the South. You may or may not be literate and numerate enough to, you know, keep up your end of the contract and keep an eye on your boss. Ideally, you are. Midwestern system of education was a little bit better. Socialists. Yeah. So yeah, that sharecropping happened in the Midwest as well. And the idea was you'd be able to save a little bit more money as a sharecropper, and then you'd grow, be able to become a cash tenant. So this is like basically a standard renting agreement. You know, I rent 20, 40, 80 acres from you, the landowner. I have enough money to own my own horse, plow, and buy the seeds. So I'm now like kind of more of a contractor. I'm a business owner with a farming business and I rent the land that I do it on. So tenant farming, if you have good ability to enforce contracts, is actually not that bad a deal. It's not that different from like a store owner who rents their store nowadays. Okay. Yeah. Like you can have a thriving business doing that. You can also be like, if you have a, you know, like a, exploitative relationship with your landlord you can also be in a very bad position so it kind of depends so much on personal position but i want to put it out there that cash tenancy is not necessarily bad if you have good contracts if you have good access to capital who is not your landlord it can work out quite nicely it can be a very good contracting business but it is also not what we think of as a family farmer right because a family farmer is someone who grows up on their farm stays there they're rooted in the community they pass their land down through the generations cash tenant farmers are not that right? So I just want to make that clear. So again, 40% of the farmers in Iowa in 1920, kind of at the peak of this land bubble, were sharecroppers and tenants. 
That's not even counting the guys who are hired hands. It's funny too, because the agricultural statistics of the time, you know, counted sharecroppers and tenants as farmers because it made it look like there were more farmers and it made the United States look better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Dudes. Yeah. Fantastic. So yeah. They're also kind of subcategorized like, well, they're this kind of farmer. If we're actually looking at the number of family farms, the number of family farms in that area would actually be quite a bit lower because a lot of those people were tenant sharecroppers, things we would actually call agricultural labor or just kind of like a general purpose, like farm business owner today more than a family farmer. So if you've ever seen that graph, I think I will see if I can get you a copy. This is kind of like the classic graph of like, look how many farmers there used to be and now there's not as many anymore. You've seen this graph, you know, like the number of farmers in the US like goes dramatically up, peaks in 1920, crashes. Oh, yes. Oh, no, I have seen this. Yes. Yeah. Classic graph. Source USDA. Census mm-hmm. agriculture through 2012 and farms and land and farming 2017. A summary. Yeah. So we'll I'll include it in the episode notes, but this is a classic graph you see pulled out in like the food and agriculture sustainability discourse constantly to show, you know, there used to be a lot of farmers and now there aren't anymore. And the population just dropped drastically. You notice how it kind of evens out in the 80s and the number of farmers stops dropping in the 80s. And it's been pretty consistent ever since. And the size of farms also keeps going up and up until the 70s or 80s. And it's been pretty steady ever since. No one ever talks about that part. It's almost like we're not facing a constant loss of small farmers. What we're facing is a demographic transition that had a start in 1920 and ended in the 1970s or the 80s. That's the collapse of the agricultural ladder. So starting in 1920, we're going to get into the dynamics of this a little bit. But to briefly summarize, we had that agricultural ladder with all these tenants and sharecroppers on it. And over the next 60 years or so, the farmers at the top who already owned land kicked everybody below them off. That's what we're seeing in these statistics. And that's why we stopped losing so many farmers and why it leveled off starting in the 80s is all the tenants and sharecroppers were pretty much already gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. The number of white landowning farmers has actually not changed that much. So it was just the poor folk. The end of the poor folk Mm -hmm. being included in this category. Yeah. Or the end of this category. Yeah. So let's get a little bit more into the dynamics of how that happened. Because again, there's a huge parallel to today's housing market. So I think we should pay attention. Yep. So this kind of comes down to escalating real estate prices. 1900 to 1920, again, we have a big land bubble. Land becomes worth a lot more. People who own land are making tons of money off of it. The tenants and sharecroppers are not. They're not benefiting from that. So they're paying money to these landowners. And that's part of why landowners are doing so well in this 1900 through 1920 period. They were not just monetizing the land, but they're also monetizing farm workers. So part of this, in that same time period, Iowa used to be swamp more than prairie, a lot of it. And so they had to drain a lot of land in order to make it farmable. So a lot of Iowa and the Midwest in general is still tiled. They call it tiling. So you dig a trench, you lay in like kind of a bunch of like flat clay tiles and then bury them back up. And that kind of helps the water leave. And it'll kind of have like a herringbone pattern through the field. There's a central ditch and then it goes into like bigger public work stitches. So they eventually invented machines that would do that. But in this 1900 through 1920 period, that was mostly hand labor that was done manually by sharecroppers and tenants in exchange for a discount on their rent. Okay. So that's an extra workload that Midwestern tenants and sharecroppers were having to do that did not exist in the South. Interesting. Yes. So they're doing this for a discount on their rent. So it doesn't really cost the landowner anything. Tiling the land, however, would increase its value by up to fivefold. Makes total sense. So, yeah. Like so the landowner is your spend- apartment for your landlord. Yeah. Yeah. So the landowner is spending basically nothing, maybe the materials. The landowner is spending basically nothing in exchange for a fivefold increase in their property value. 
That sounds great for them. That sounds like a wonderful system. Yeah. And then if you're a tenant or sharecropper who's trying to buy into land, like save up enough money to buy land, well, more and more of the land is becoming yourself out of the market. Yes, that's what happened. Oh, man. So when we look at this collapse in the number of farmers that started in 1920, that is renters getting screwed out of the market. It is not loss of family farmers. That is renters getting fucked out of the market. Exciting. Yeah. How different. If we actually talked about that and why this is not agribusiness, this is landowners that did this. If we talked about that, how different would our discourse about food and how we fix the food system be? Well, I think that people have a very simplified idea of what good farmland is, right? I mean, a number of times you and I have talked about soil quality, right? Mm -hmm. But you can take bad farmland Mm -hmm. and turn it into good farmland with excellent stewardship. The labor theory of value. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So it's fascinating to me that people might believe that, you know, there's just, yeah, that farmland is worth whatever it's valued at, right? And there's no negotiating on that. And in actual fact, it's not a constant value. This is Mm -hmm. definitely a value that responds to availability, external markets, and also, again, power and socioeconomic control mm-hmm. i would say there's no such thing as bad soil or bad land it's just did you treat it right you know are you trying to grow the right thing there yeah so we have this whole time period when landowners are really capitalizing on the fact that they own land getting people to do extraordinarily valuable work for them for basically free and then pricing those people out of the market that's what that's where all those poor farmers went so they were tenants and sharecroppers and they got priced out of the land markets that's what happened so any parallels to like maybe today's residential real estate <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, ranch houses and, you know, two bedroom, one baths are $500,000 or $1.2 million. I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any family could afford that if they really worked for it. Well, I could just do a reductionist parallel for a second as well. You know, in Barbara Ehrenreich's work, Fear of Falling, she talks about how the middle class is terrified of losing their place, right? Mm -hmm that they aspire to a specific type of house, a specific lifestyle. And what they're worried about is becoming homeless, is becoming working class. It's becoming lower class, like is falling down this class caste ladder system. If you don't have a homeless population to terrify your middle class with, right? What are they then going to look to do? Who are mm-hmm. they then going to compare themselves against? Be, just be grateful you've got a place a to purpose. go at night. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a nice place. They look at the things you can provide for your family. And maybe it's not what all these billionaires have, but it's better than what that guy in the corner has. Right. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to become him. So we're going to toe the line and not quit our jobs and, you know, work for the money. Just be grateful that you have something at all. Right. It is the season of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have this real estate bubble that is being pushed in the Midwest. It's being done at the expense of renters, like literally at their expense. Prices people out of the market. So a few different things happen. The time that it takes to climb the agricultural ladder, you know, in 1900, I saw a study on this. It took five to 10 years. It's it's a decent length of apprenticeship, but it's successful. It's a thing you can do to build a career. By 1920, it was more like 20 years. Uh-oh. So that's getting into most of your working life just to get started actually on your own. So the agricultural ladder starts to become a lot less appealing for it's the rural working class. 
which at the time was huge. This was, you know, prior to rural depopulation. So you have this massive population of very poor farm workers who are white and are citizens and can vote in the Midwest. You know, in the South, about half of them are not considered citizens effectively. So that was kind of how landowners in the South prevented organizing. But in the Midwest, they're like, oh, we're going to have to come up with something else. So number one, they kept them moving. But that was starting to become not enough. Because with the advent of the automobile, people could travel. You know, with telephones, people could talk more. So in 1911, northern and southern landowners get together to found the Farm Bureau. Oh, the Farm Bureau. Yeah. This should be an intense experience. Yes. So the birth of the Farm Bureau. So, you know, prior to the Civil War, northern and southern landowners were kind of at loggerheads. You know, you got your southern farmers doing cotton. You got your northern farmers kind of doing their own thing. They're selling mostly to the Caribbean. Remember, prior to the Civil War... The South was growing a lot of its own food because, like, not for any benevolent reason. They're just like, oh, I'm a landowner. This helps me keep control of my labor force. That makes me feel good. So that's why they were growing most of their own food in the South before the Civil War. After the Civil War, they switched to being the gatekeepers for food imports from the Midwest. So northern and southern landowners now have a shared economic interest, and they also have a shared interest in keeping sharecroppers and rural labor down. So all of a sudden, they're friends, and they decide to really... fantastic. Yeah, like, whereas before there have been very sectional divides, you know, like the United States was healing. The rich white people were all coming together to oppress the poor. <laughs> Get those mutual aid networks. Yeah, yeah. I need to pick Rob's brain a little bit. He says there were some Supreme Court decisions that may have prompted the formation of the Farm Bureau. I need to check in with him on that. But yeah, the Farm Bureau was a cross-regional, like, let's heal the country and, and defend our mutual interests by wealthy white landowners in the North and the South to kind of like bridge their divides, come together, reach across the aisle, and fuck sharecroppers together. That's the Farm Bureau. So it's wild to me now that we have, like, you know, farmers today who are like, well, the Farm Bureau doesn't represent me. And I'm like, if you still have a farm, it damn well does. <laughs> I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had about class solidarity and mm-hmm. perceptions thereof. So what does the Farm Bureau do or do for or to these people? Yeah, so the Farm Bureau was mostly about lobbying Washington to make sure that farm workers were exempt from labor laws. They were very successful at that, right? Yeah. So this is why the New Deal exempted agriculture from, you know, from labor protections. I think there's kind of a common discourse of like, oh, it's because black people were doing farm work. Half the sharecroppers in the South were white. And most of the sharecroppers and tenant farmers in the North were white. This was not an, I mean... I don't want to be like, it wasn't anti-Black. It obviously was. But I think framing it as a racial issue actually gives white people a false sense of security. And I don't think we should do that. We already feel too safe as it is. This was like domestic labor also similarly. Domestic labor in a lot of the country was heavily Black, but not universal by any means. I think a more useful way to think of it in parallel with the racism that was obviously a huge proponent of it was also farm labor and domestic labor are jobs that are happening not on a factory floor not in a dockyard, but within wealthy white people's own homes. And the government can't tell a wealthy white person how to run their own castle. No. no. I think that's actually like a little bit more helpful way to think of it a lot of the time, because framing farm labor as a job that was exclusively people of color at this time is just not true. And I think it also lets rich white people off the hook for what they did. (laughs) You know, like it's kind of ignoring some really important wealth dynamics that were happening at the time. And the fact that Midwestern landowners were a huge part of this push. Don't let them off the hook. So yeah, if you've ever heard people say things like, well, the rural areas used to be populist. Whatever happened to that? This is what happened to that. Oh, no. 
Yeah. I think what people think when they say rural areas used to be populist is like the grandpas and great grandpas of today's farmers were populist. That is absolutely not true. They were fucking reactionaries. That's why they kept the land and they're still there. The people who were populist were the sharecroppers and the tenant farmers and like the folks who had just bought land and still had a mortgage to pay. And they've since been squeezed out. That's why rural areas used to be populist and they aren't anymore. The populists are gone. They have been evicted. They have been evicted. Yeah. So that's fun to me to hear, gosh, like well-meaning, like wannabe socialists who know nothing about American history. <laughs> the populist eviction. Yeah. They're like, well, we have to appeal to farmers because like mm, they used to be populist and we can totally get them back. And I'm like, not these farmers. Like the folks who are still there are there because they had multi-generational wealth a century ago. They're the folks who kicked the populists out. You are never getting them on your team. Just, you know, sit with that, live with that, and maybe become friends with farm labor instead of farmers. There we go. And like again, it's wild because they're like, well, they can't vote. I'm like, a surprising number of them are residents and citizens, mm. and the citizens can vote. It's an excellent <laughs> point. Yeah. So this idea of like, oh, farm workers, like, you know, like that what's happening to them is so sad, but like we can't really address it politically because they can't really vote. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope, that is missing the point. And I think the idea that we're supposed to discount farm workers because they're not really citizens and can't be involved in the political life of this country is an idea that rich white landowners and farm companies and agribusiness want us to believe. So I'd encourage you to pay a little more attention. <laughs> you know, like I would encourage folks to like maybe not buy into that so much. So yeah, like it's you're getting... telling me, Sarah, is that there is a largely untapped voter base in farm labor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of those folks, you know, like either they came to this country as kids or they're born there, you know, their parents are farm workers and they're in places with really limited economic circumstances. And so you do what jobs are there, work in the pork plant. So you can be a citizen and be a farm worker. It happens a lot, actually. <laughs> you know, this is exciting. This should be exciting news, right? Yeah. For this whole where have all the farmers gone narrative, farm mm -hmm. workers, not farmers. Yeah. This is a distinction that goes yeah. back to land ownership. Yeah, a lot of the folks that we were like looking back and going like, oh, those radical farmers of your, they were farm workers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's why they're not on the farms anymore. They got kicked off. And the folks who are farm workers today, still pretty inclined to be populist, you know, and, and pretty inclined to be just in need of civil and human rights. Yeah, like they're in need of a lot of service, really neglected population when it comes to civil rights, labor law, that kind of thing. Is farmers are really, really effective at lobbying for like, well, I'm just a little farmer. And if you pass labor laws, then I'm going to go out of business, which is a line they've been pulling since 1911 <laughs> with the Farm Bureau. So if you really want to fix the food system, if you really want to like kick agribusiness in the junk, I would encourage you to stop believing their propaganda about how farm workers just don't really count as people mm. and about how like farmers are just not the little guy. The median farmer in the U.S., I have a whole podcast episode just on this, is a millionaire. They're not the little guy. They own property. They are involved in, like, the whole capital chain. They own trillions of dollars worth of real estate in the U.S. Farmers are capital. So if you're trying to get them to be populists, you're just going to have a tough time. You are barking up the wrong tree. They're not your demographic. Yeah, they're really not. And just and that's okay. Just sit with that. Like, again, I think agrarianism has done a really good job of getting people to just really buy into this little family farmer picture. And I need you to understand that image was created for propaganda reasons, <laughs> you know, for PR reasons, if it makes you feel better to think of it that way. Farmers have really effectively marketed themselves as victims of agribusiness, where in, in reality, if you look at how they lobby and how they vote, farmers and agribusiness generally both believe we should not have pollution laws. They both believe we should not have labor laws. They both believe we should not have consumer protection laws. Tell me where they're different. 
I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah. Yeah. So again, when a farmer says the Farm Bureau doesn't represent me, I'm like, tell me where you're different. Point it to me on a map. <laughs> you know, like you may not love them. You may feel like they're kind of hoity-toity and stuff. But when push comes to shove, there's a reason the Farm Bureau still calls the shots and you haven't done anything about it. It's interesting to think that, you know, we have words for this. Like when things are not different, when they are mm -hmm. in fact aligned, allied, mm -hmm. or they are the same. Mm -hmm. They're the same. They're mm -hmm. the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like people get really mad when I say this, but when you look at like how U.S. politics actually works, we have this idea that it's farmers versus agribusiness. And that's absolutely not what's really happening. It is they're on the same team in every way that really counts. They'll bicker a little bit over like which one of them, like how to divide the spoils of the project they're doing together, which is liquidating land and labor. They have tussles over that, but neither of them really disagree over the fact that we should be liquidating land and labor. Aligned. Yeah. Allied. The same. Yeah. yeah. So that's why, again, like the way I started thinking about this was if you learn about like organic crop production, right? The question is, you know, if you have a pest or disease that's coming upon your farm, we're not supposed to think, how do I kill the disease? How do I kill the pest, right? We're supposed to think, how have I created a situation where this pest or disease can thrive? Why is this place so vulnerable? How can I change that condition, right? Once I started applying that thinking to human systems, stuff went sideways. Once I started asking myself, you know, Instead of looking at, at agribusiness like a pest or disease that came upon family farms and we've got to fight it back, what if we asked ourselves, what is it about family farms that was so inviting to agribusiness in the first place? If you ask yourself that question, things look different. I just different. got shivers. I just got shivers. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is it about family farms that just like can't seem to shake agribusiness? Maybe we should think about that. All right. So if you're a poor rural worker in the Midwest or the Plains, and you're trying to work your way up this agricultural ladder, but the land values in the Midwest and the nice productive farmland that's already been drained and irrigated or whatever it needs. If you're trying to work your way up this ladder and you're priced out of the Midwest, what do you do? What a lot of people landed on was maybe let's go try in Oklahoma. Leave. You leave. You, you go leave. someplace else. Yeah. So this is kind of like the last gasp of homesteading was 1900 through 1920. The USDA, like the U.S. Census Office, like formally declared the frontier closed, I think like in the 1890s, because their definition was any area with fewer than X, X white people per square mile, right? It was kind of an arbitrary definition, but that still left a lot of places thinly populated enough that you could try and homestead there. But the only places left with that much like land availability that didn't already have people farming it were like Western Kansas, Western Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas Panhandle, Northeastern New Mexico, Southern Colorado. All these places that it, within a decade or two became the Dust Bowl. Yeah. So uh, if you've ever thought about the Dust Bowl and asked yourself, why were people trying to farm this place that's obviously kind of dry and cursed? Well, who would do such a thing? There's your answer. They got priced out of the Midwest. It was people fleeing a real estate bubble in the Midwest. If you wanted to make a living in agriculture, that was really the last place you could go. And they tried to make a go for it. So that's how the dust ball happened. <laughs> I always assumed that there was more to the mechanics of deforestation and soil substrate blown nope. away and things like that. Oh, It was okay. just real estate. <laughs> oh, that's super fun. Yeah, I really built it up. And it's like a two minute story. You're like, and then there was a dust bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I was going to sing Do Re Mi by Woody Guthrie, but the Ani DeFranco version. Mm-hmm. So the golden age of Midwestern agriculture, to briefly recap, did a lot of things that weren't great, set a lot of unreasonable expectations about how just owning a family farm should be enough to live on forever mm-hmm. and ever because we're ignoring market conditions that made it that way artificially for a while, created the Dust Bowl, and now we're going to talk about how it created farm automation. So again, you've got all this populist uprising starting to happen in the Midwest and the Plains. This is freaking rich landowners out, and they start thinking, how are we going to keep these guys down? They do the Farm Bureau. They start lobbying for certain laws. That's very effective, but it's not enough. There's just still too many poor people around. We've got to get them out of here. So that's where a lot of the farm automation comes from. So we had like kind of a brief push for making like wheat harvesters and combines and reapers and stuff kind of in the 1870s through like 1880s and 1890s. But that was kind of short lived, just kind of stayed limited to like really heavy wheat production areas. And there was one in Minnesota and the Dakotas in the 1870s, 1880s. There's a wheat bonanza up there that was kind of brief as that area got connected to railroads. There was another one in California around the same time, kind of a wheat boom in California. And then market conditions changed and it was no longer lucrative to have like giant wheat farms with machines. And so there's a boom in automation for a little bit at the end of the 1800s and then it kind of went away. But then it came back once Southern and Midwestern landlords realized we have to get rid of labor because as hard as we're working and as successful as we are at passing these laws, we're not as successful as you want to be. We have to keep these people down. That's not working. So now we just have to get rid of them. So 1900 through 1920 is when real investments into tractors as opposed to horses and combines really begin like long-term like sustained innovation in these areas so this is like the ag tech industry of the jim crow era (laughs) it was probably feeding into the land-grant colleges right Mm -hmm. yeah i'm not sure what the role of the land-grant colleges at this time was i know in the south like in addition to like the conventional land-grant college system there was also like agriculture manufacturing colleges or agriculture mining colleges so they were pushing black folks if they were going to get an education to only get an education in agriculture and other vocational topics. So like that was a part of it. I have a whole episode coming up about that. There was a yeah. state innovation in. Yeah. It was really more technology. of a corporate like tech sector thing than it was land grant colleges. John Deere, McCormick, you know, those guys. So there's a demand, like the landowners are now going, wait a second. Like I can have my, you know, lumber yard or banker or dentist job during the week. That's why I need sharecroppers to manage my land. But what if there was a machine that I could just drive around on evenings and weekends and replace them all? Ooh, this, yeah. This is, this is where you have an evil genius laugh. Yeah. So that was your evil genius laugh. I know. I've been like trying to tamp it down because it's like, you know, like people get the wrong idea or the right idea. <laughs> you know. There we go. That's better. Thank you. It just right. comes from inside. <laughs> but yeah, th- this was the source of a lot of the, the sustained push for, um, agricultural tech innovation that happened starting in the early 1900s was just the desire to get rid of sharecroppers. The way it's kind of portrayed now is like, oh, you know, like family farmers are just trying to reduce labor and they're just like trying to like earn their keep and stuff. That was not the driving force. It was big landowners trying to get rid of labor. Which has important implications for how agriculture and especially agribusiness grew in the wake of this. You know, like once the big landowners were using tractors and had replaced their sharecroppers, then that did change, you know, like the profitability and the price points of owning land. And so family farmers who were smaller operations did have to keep up after that, but they did not start this. Yeah. So like it was not an issue of family farmers kind of expanding and pushing each other off the land. It was wealthy landowners 
kicking tenants and sharecroppers off. That is how this started. And we just keep like writing that out of the story. It's wild to me. It's crazy. So yeah, like kind of the core of that business model was if you're a wealthy landowner and you're freaked out by labor problems, like you can just get a tractor and do all this work yourself and you won't have to deal with them anymore. That was really the core of this. Something we don't talk about nearly as much. Again, these are wealthier landowners with a white collar job, dentists, bankers, you know, stockyard owners. How much do you think they knew about the day-to-day execution of agricultural work? Basically zero. Yeah. But now they're suddenly in charge of all the operations. How do you think that went? I think that landed like a lead balloon. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> yeah. So this is something that I haven't, like, I'm still working on tracing down sources, but like, no, it's one of those things that nobody's going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I've found hints of this in Wendell Berry's writings. Wendell Berry. We've talked what? about Wendell. Yeah. yeah. When you work in agriculture as long as I do in the South, you may like guys like Wendell Berry are a dime a dozen. And so his bullshit must've worked on somebody because he became a very famous writer. But I look at him and I'm like, he's just laundering Southern paternalism for like the New Yorker audience. <laughs> this has been his whole career. Right. So he's kind of, he's got this story about how his dad got a tractor and having that new technology made it too easy to plow. So he really overdid it and blah, blah, blah. And that's why it's technology's fault that all these things, like that's why it's technology's fault that their land is degraded. What Wendell Berry doesn't tell you is they used to have not just a horse and plow do this, but they had a black sharecropper and a horse and plow do this. Oh, funny sharecroppers missing a key ingredient. I know. They just wrote them right out of the story. It's crazy. So, you know, this is a population that has a lot more experience in actual hands-on operations of agriculture. Do you think maybe the fact that they're missing might have a little bit to do with the problem? It's not just the machine? I can't even imagine <laughs> where you're going with that. I can't. You can't know imagine. I mean? Like, why Why would completely eliminating your experienced talent core in any way, shape, or form impact your performance? Yeah. How could that possibly happen, right? Let's Feels just like eliminate. Twitter. Yeah. Let's eliminate all the skilled, <laughs> experienced labor and the results will be good. So this is what wealthy landowners did. They didn't just replace labor with machines, but they didn't really have the experience to use those machines effectively. And then, like, as we see with Wendell Berry, they refused to take responsibility for what they did. They just blamed the machines. So I think this is where we get a lot of the discourse about, like, oh, it's, you know, agribusiness takeover. Because if you blame the machines and you blame the guys who sold them to you, you don't have to take your responsibility for your HR decisions on your own operation. <laughs> <laughs> And your own lack of knowledge and your refusal to invest in running your place right. Nothing's your fault. Just happened to you. The magic of this, right, is that we basically are seeing through a 40-year period or so Mm -hmm. the, you know, wealthy land-owning class trying to control labor to so much that they want to, you know, create food insecurity, that they want to create housing insecurity essentially making the white shareholders in the midwest shareholders i keep saying shareholders (laughs) sharecroppers yeah i know in the midwest move so frequently there these are all elements of exerting control and then they want to eliminate them completely by machine by replacing them with machines that they can fully control but it's still an exploitative system within an exploitative system like this doesn't liberate anybody and weirdly enough not even the wealthy landowners right because the lepers ate their faces too right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so like basically wealthy landowners created agribusiness to help them get rid of labor and then 
you know, they created these really powerful institutions. And also like, because it's easier to grow your business by becoming a franchise than it is to like actually grow your skills. So like a lot of farmers like got taken over by agribusiness for basically the same reason that a lot of like people who want a business become a McDonald's franchise owner rather than start their own restaurant, because it's just easier. Right. If you actually run your own farm, or if you actually start your own restaurant, you have to understand, you know, like, how do I pick a location that people go to? McDonald's will pick that for you. How do I pick a menu? McDonald's will pick that for you. How do I source my stuff? McDonald's will pick that for you. How do I return my workers? McDonald's will do that for you. It's the same thing. This is why we have a lot of folks who, like, this is how we wind up with farmers who have these barns full of chickens that they don't own. It's because they chose to franchise because it's easier. Right. It's not because there was no money for them to figure out how to do it themselves. There was quite a bit of resources being poured onto farmers, especially post-World War II. So these attempts to kind of replace workers with machines and get into automated barns kind of picked up in, you know, this early, you know, 19-teens, 1920s. There was a farm depression starting in the 20s because everyone bought all this farm and equipment at way inflated prices, believing the party would go on forever. So the farm industry starts getting into recession in the 20s. Then the Great Depression happens. Then we have World War II. They started trying to do these things in the aughts, teens, and 20s. They kind of were forced to put it on hold through the 20s, 30s, and some of the 40s. And then after World War II, the money taps turn back on. So they're able to actually execute on these plans they've been having for decades, right? Of consolidating land, replacing workers with machines, and also franchising with agribusiness. So you can be a doofus landowner who's a banker or like a car dealer or just some other white collar business, but you still have a farm and it's okay that you have no experience farming. Because agribusiness will take care of that for you. So that's the real story of how we got agribusiness. It was not a takeover. It was, come on in, guys. It'll be fine. Oh, my God, the leopards ate my face, too. (laughs) And I I think until the farm community is willing to grapple with that, I don't think they're the people to dictate how we change and how we get out of this. It's also masterful how they've also created essentially a new market for both farmland and for this kind of unquantifiable notion of what farming is, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise you had to only sell it to other wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, unless you have a couple, I'm sure there were a couple of government bailouts throughout the, the years, but if you didn't want to sell it to your sharecroppers, if you didn't want to lower the price to meet the available demand, then, mm-hmm. but agribusiness allows you to keep the land, still kind of make some money, mm-hmm. or just sell it outright and then you can just live off your uh hoarded wealth for mm-hmm. the next couple of generations yep yeah so it's kind of funny too because there's some areas where the landowners largely chose to cash out and there's other areas where they largely chose to kind of transition to agribusiness so those farm areas kind of developed a little bit differently it can vary just like county to county you know how people did that you know sometimes there's like a soil or climate reason that sometimes it's just what people decided to do mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of rhyme and reason to it I want to circle back to something you said about housing insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that one of the things that the system did, especially in the Midwest, because of the constant transients being built into the system, it created housing insecurity. Okay. So the title of this photo is a little bit of a spoiler. So don't read that. But like, describe to me what you're seeing here. (laughs) This comes from like some kind of WPA archive for a little bit of context. Is this literally somebody loading a house onto a movable trailer dragged by a horse? Oh my, you Mm -hmm. took your house with you? This was the origination of tiny homes, the wheeled edition. This is where mobile homes come from. Oh, the Midwest. It's not a Southern institution. So like, this is a thing I hear would hear constantly is like, oh yeah, you know, mobile homes are descended from the slave shack. No, they're not. Slave shacks are 
heartbreakingly permanent. You don't go anywhere. That's the point, right? The mobile home is not descended from the slave shack. The whole point of a slave shack is it's very permanent, right? You are held on someone's property. There is no leaving. There is no moving. Mobile homes are about something very, very different. So mobile homes, as far as I can surmise, come from tenant farmers in the Midwest, you know, because if you're farming someone else's land and you have to leave every year, where are you supposed to live? You build a shack on their property. Now they own it and you have to leave. Do that every year? I don't think so. So what a lot of the folks that did was they built a little shack on wheels and they would live in it. And they, in this time period, this photo that I have is from 1936 or 37. So this is a guy moving at the end of the fall. So there's snow on the ground. He's got a horse that he's hitching it up to. He is attaching his little shack to his horse so he can go to his next gig. I think in this guy's situation, he was actually like just quitting farming. He was not trying to find a new place. So he was just leaving farming, period. Because this was 36. One of the Farm Bureau's biggest victories in the New Deal in the Great Depression was loan programs for landowners to get agricultural equipment, to buy tractors and combines to replace guys like this guy who was moving out. So if you've ever heard agricultural spokesmen like Wendell Berry, Joel Salatin, Michael Pollan say things like, people abandoned the countryside. People gave up on farming. People got lazy. They wanted high wages. They wanted city jobs. That is not what happened. They got kicked out. There's actually a great quote from Henry Wallace. His family had a farm journal, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. the social media of the day. You could write in, do little, you know, journalette articles. There's an article complaining about how hard it was to get rid of all these tenant farmers and sharecroppers. Because the landowners, you know, who were the main audience for Henry Wallace's journal, I don't know how he got a reputation for being so populous, because if you actually look at his publishing record, uh, nope. (laughs) But he was from farm country, and that was, like, good enough for a lot of urban audiences. They, like today, didn't know the difference. So, like, folks were writing in Henry Wallace's farm journal about how hard it was to get rid of these freaking sharecroppers and tenant farmers. There is a line about how they hung on with a grim determination on the land. Oh my. Their big complaint was they couldn't get rid of these people fast enough. Because the mm-hmm. thinking was, you know, like, as long as they're here, they're being rabble rousers in my community. Poor people get off my lawn, right? But as soon as they have given up on farming and they've gone to the city, what do they have to do? They have to buy food. So they saw getting rid of farm workers not just as a, a way to make their lives more convenient, but as a way to grow agricultural markets. It's to make the market. Yeah, to make, the market. yeah, to make people dependent on them for food. So there's a twofold goal in getting rid of farm workers. They wanted the countryside of themselves. That's genius. Yeah. And they just wanted more people who had to buy food in this country. So this was very much a project of wealthy landowners. They talked to each other about how to do it. They complained about how it wasn't happening fast enough. And they worked really hard to pass laws to force people into cities. And now they've got the nerve to complain about how folks live in cities and they just don't know how farming works. Well, whose fault is that? (laughs) It's diabolical. Mm -hmm. And now, as Paul Harvey would never say, you know the rest of the story. (laughs) You better go back to your beautiful Georgia. Yeah. Alabama, something, something, Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) She probably know the lyrics before I start singing that song. Nostalgia for the South. I don't know about that. No, but like, so this well, is they one were of kicking thing- them out of California. They weren't letting them in. Oh, there you go. Yeah, very good. So this is one of the things that kind of drives me a little bit wild is when we talk today in sustainable food discourse about how we can fix the food system, one of the top things that people say is, well, farmers need to get paid more. You know, like all this bad behavior is caused by farmers not getting paid enough. They have to seek a profit. It's a race to the bottom, blah, blah, blah. 
Okay, well, let's look at a time period when farmers were making a lot of money, 1900 through 1920. What were they doing with that money? Starting agribusiness. <laughs> they were using those profits to buy machines, get rid of workers, you know, expand feedlots, create- Consolidate the- control. Consolidate yeah. control. That's what they were using it for. Yeah. So I think when they're making more money, actually things get worse. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Like, that is so wild to me. Like, if you really believe that, maybe let's look back at some time periods in history when farmers were making more money and see what it did to this country. It was fucking horrible. This time period, 1900 through 1920, has set the stage for so many horrible things that happened for the rest of the 20th century. Agribusiness consolidation, the Dust Bowl, you know, urban poverty. This is where it came from, was from 20 years when farmers were making money. You see that the farmers, the landowners, they never go against their prime directive, right? To to mm-hmm. drag this into Star Trek. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, their goal is to create more markets, but ultimately it's just to keep control. Mm-hmm. And they use that against the workers. They use that against old markets. They use that as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Well, one more thing, though, is so the Midwest grain golden age of the Midwest farming collapsed in 1920, but how Pelagra continued on for another 20 years. Yeah. So it kind of carried on in some niche circumstances. So you still have folks who are like, the bull weevil didn't finish sweeping through the South until like, let me get a look at this map. There's like a great time-lapse map that the USDA did showing it spread. Okay. Yeah. So it starts in South Texas in like the late 1890s or late 1800s, 1890s, makes it up to Virginia by 1922. So cotton mill towns was a big part of it. So these are folks who are very poor and not farming, right? Mm -hmm. So by 19, you know, by the 1920s, folks who were still sharecropping had a little bit more flexibility on what they could do. They weren't experiencing it quite as much, but you still had folks living in cotton mill towns. You had folks living in coal mining communities, folks living in reservations on government rations. You had the kids in residential schools. So, okay. So the population spread out. Mm Mm-hmm. It was still indigenous and poor people. It was just mm-hmm. different indigenous and poor people or the continuity of the residential schools, the same indigenous and poor people. Yeah. Also people living in asylums, like insane asylums, because pellagra gives you mental health symptoms, right? Dementia. Like you'd have a temporary case of pellagra. Like it kind of tend to show up in late spring when people are most malnourished and most kind of like living off of stored corn and, and salt pork. Rashes. So you could get a temporary rash of it. But then if you got put into an asylum, what are you eating in the asylum? They're feeding you corn salt pork and molasses yeah so the asylums are out there going oh my god it's incurable due to the diet they were feeding people so if you're in one of those populations who's still living effectively in captivity you're still going to be getting pellagra you know it did go down over time because some states did start putting in you've got to fortify you know grain with nutrients if you want to sell in the state but it was not universal and so you still had a lot of pockets of it going on into 1940 so the 1940s is when the federal government said, if you're selling grain products anywhere in this country, you got to fortify with B vitamins. So that really put the end to it universally. But yeah, if you were poor, but you live in the countryside by this time, you had more access to like, you could go fishing, you know, you could, you know, hunt and trap a little bit. And you could also, you had more latitude to grow your own food. So in that specific population of sharecroppers, it did start to go down, but you still had a lot of people living in other, like basically in captivity circumstances who were still very prone to it. I love that there's still not a major focus on nutrition as part of current, you know, allopathic medical schools. Yeah, I mean, like the thing is like doing nutritional research is difficult and ethically complicated. You can't just like starve people of a certain nutrient anymore and see what happens, right? Because we have medical ethics now. Except for the people that we've already starved. Yeah. Nutritional research is profoundly difficult to do. 
for a whole lot of reasons, you know, human experimentation in general, but especially on nutrition, because people just don't really like report, even if they're actually trying, we don't always remember what we've eaten. And so just getting a record of what people have eaten, basically impossible, unless you keep them in, you know, research in captivity. Confined, in a confined circumstance, which yeah. I think we are all down with agreeing is probably not a good thing yeah plus again like we talked about earlier a lot of the stuff that we're blaming on diet actually probably comes from other stressful situations in your life that it you know and bad diet is a comorbidity like if you have no time no sleep blah 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 you're probably also eating a bad diet just as a function of the fact that you have no time and no sleep and no money right so sorting out those confounding variables is incredibly difficult so i mean if you can't even do the research on it you can't exactly teach in a medical school i think the bottom line is poverty bad and when people have freedom and agency in their lives, they actually generally tend to make pretty good nutritional choices. I know this is a hot take, but I think a lot of the nutritional and public health problems we're seeing boil down to a lack of agency and a lack of resources. But we're very loath to see it that way because it's just easier to blame it on people making bad choices because if they're sick because they make bad choices, then the solution is to control them. If their problem is lack of resources and agency, then the solution is to liberate and emancipate people from a horrible system. And no one wants to go there. So... That would solve everything. Everything. Yeah. Nobody wants to go there except most people, but except not the ones people. in power. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That would be a solution, though, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. But yeah. So I have hot take that's kind of fun, I hope. You know the Captain America story, right? Yes. Yeah. Tuberculosis ridden, sick, malnourished beanpole kid goes into the army gets a shot of nutrients, gets huge. I think this might be like kind of an allegory for ending the pellagra outbreak and a lot of other like nutrition-related public health problems that were prevalent at the time. Infectious disease, vaccines were kind of becoming a thing that was accessible to people. Again, like we kind of memory hold exactly what happened. But the fact that a ton of people were sick and measly and did a lot better once they were in the army and actually eating right, I think that kind of stuck with us. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that makes total sense. Yeah, because that definitely happened. Yeah, and again, like we finally fixed Pellagra because, you know, like, up until World War II, you know, wealthy people kind of felt like oh, you know, the public being sick is fine. You know, like poor people being sick and, and gross that doesn't really affect me. But as soon as we had a war where we needed a lot of cannon fodder who could like you know follow orders and shoot back, mm. then wealthy people were like, oh, we'd better invest in public health. That's really what made force their hand, which is interesting to me. Well, it is also fascinating that, you know, in all the other contained adult situations, you had this malnourishment, but the army was not that place. And there was a focus on quantity and quality of rations in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Like they say, an army marches on its stomach, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a place where you know, the federal power structure, like the powers that be actually had an interest in keeping people healthy for once. That's so grim. Well, <laughs> similar to the, you know, South Beach diet is Mediterranean diet is too expensive for all the rest of us. It goes to show that we have definitely utilized the impoverishment of our populace to recruit new people to the army and -hmm. provide them with a basic standard of life mm -hmm. that is impressively better mm -hmm. than some other things that we've managed to allow them to wallow in. And this too is not a coincidence. Yeah. When we uh, passed that student debt relief package, we have some uh, GOP folks complain that no one's going to join the army now. Yes. 
Yeah. No, that was definitely one of the things that they mentioned. If people, say not, that. if people can pay for college on their own or they're not saddled with student debt forever, why on earth would they want to carry a gun for our country? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, we're really like, saying the quiet stuff loud, aren't we? <laughs> again, sitting right on the point. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Ah, oh, good stuff. So yeah, that's a little review of U.S. farm history. There Obviously, there's a lot of things we're leaving out. We're not getting into like all the stuff that happened in the Great Basin, California, Washington. We're kind of cutting off. We're mostly dealing with the eastern half of the country. But that is like the agriculture. <laughs> that's like the agricultural approach, lifestyle, way of thinking that U.S. settlers and colonists brought with them West. So like that's the operating system they're working on as they set up shop out there out West. And again, like just the fact that the South was so busy doing a Jim Crow that they couldn't be bothered growing fruits and vegetables helps explain why California is, you know, the fruit bowl now. So it's not unrelated to everything that happened in the rest of the country. I think this is just a really good way to kind of set the stage. And when people are promulgating certain stories and certain like ideas about how agriculture used to work that are very idealistic, that are very pastoral, that set forth the idea that farming used to be egalitarian and it used to work for people. It's absolutely not true. And I think that is a really important, you know, this story is not comprehensive. Obviously there's a lot of farm history that we can't cover in this, but that's kind of like the 101 level, like basics. This is what you need to know about what really happened in order to start evaluating the claims that people are making about how things used to be great. This is what really happened. Mm -hmm. And it's never ever agriculture has never ever operated outside of a power structure that Mm -hmm. relies on exploitation Mm -hmm. yep i have a question and this Mm -hmm. may not be a topic we could go into here or might not fit within this context but when we think about pelagra and residential schools and the farm bureau i'm wondering about the nutritional value and or the quality of food that is mandated by our public schools connected to agriculture in this country. Yeah. So that's a whole thing. That's a whole discipline that other people actually work on. (laughs) And I'm like not really qualified to speak to that. Like nutrition in public schools has been a big area of focus for public health folks for some time. Yeah. So there are tons of better people to ask about this. I'm really kind of focusing on parts of history that like haven't been explored much. (laughs) I'm just curious if that was a, if that was a corollary in this Mm -hmm. story. Yeah, lobbying that has gone into it and the number of failure stories of people who have attempted at the local level to supplement school lunch with fresh locally sourced. My understanding is I'd have to look up, you know, like actual details on this. But, you know, when the Black Panthers started doing their school breakfast program, that actually spurred the government to get more involved in providing food for school children because they realized, oh, there's this public (laughs) service that we're not providing. And it's giving the Black Panthers a way to get popular and get support. Uh We've got to squeeze them out. So in that sense, they were very successful at getting nutrition done into the schools at a federal level and get some backing for it. So God forbid someone provided public service (laughs) outside of state control. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So that's one way to get things done. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I hope this is useful for folks because there's, I think there's a lot of people out there who sense that kind of like the Michael Pollan version of events, you know, mm-hmm. like he didn't invent this. He's just kind of like one of the more famous promulgators of it. It's like, you know, everything used to be family farms and it was great. And then agribusiness invaded. I think a lot of folks sense that that story is not spot on. But mm-hmm. there is no counter narrative. There is no other version of affairs to kind of like look at and compare and fact check it with. So we're just trying to get that out there. I love it. Yeah. 
research. Awesome. It's, it's wild because historians have been working on this for some time, but like popular food writers have not been availing themselves of that information. So mm. you can write anything you want if you never crack a history book.